So our scripture reading today will be from Psalm 19. And if you're using the Black Bibles that are provided for you, that is on page 538. Uh, it's very good to, uh, to be back and preaching with you all. Uh, so I know that, so I've been here many Sundays, but not preaching. And it's, I don't know if you're keeping track, but I'm keeping track. I haven't preached in a month. So, uh, so we'll see what impact that had, has. Uh, either we will all agree that I need less time off, or uh, we'll be like, oh, look at that. It's like riding a bike. Uh, this summer, for the most part, as with other summers, we're sort of, uh, we take a break from our, our regular uh, sermon series, uh, which right now is Luke. And right now, we're, uh, for the most part, we're looking at uh, various psalms. And so when I'm out of the pulpit, it makes it easy to just tell a fellow, hey, choose a psalm, any psalm, uh, just not one of the psalms I'm going to preach. Um, the psalms are called God's hymnal or Israel's songbook. It's a range of topics. There's 150 different psalms, and they cover uh, pretty much every emotion uh, you could imagine. And they remind us that uh, the emotions or the things that we're feeling find their best and holiest expression when we bring them directly to God in full honesty. So when we are full of joy and gladness and happiness, it is great. It's a great opportunity to worship God with joy and gladness and happiness. And there are so many psalms that bring us that that pleasure. Uh, the last five psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, are just these explosion of, of fireworks, if you'll pardon the cultural reference, of praise to God uh, at the end of the psalm, end of the psalms. But then also if we are feeling uh, angry or uh, distressed, discouraged, uh, even depressed, when we are feeling alone and abandoned, uh, the most, the, the greatest place that you can take those feelings are to God in worship. Uh, the beauty of a psalmist crying out, where are you, O Lord? Why are you so far from me? Um, you know, we don't, we don't actually say those words if we don't trust that God actually is listening at the moment. If I actually thought God was far from me, I wouldn't actually be praying anymore. But the beauty of being invited to cry out in our despair, even cry out in our anger. Psalm 13 is a great example of just this constant, how long, how long, how long, O Lord? And just the, that God invites us to come and express our feelings to him in those ways. If you were here on June 12th, Reverend uh, Michael Langer walked us through Psalm 42, which is one of those psalms uh, that, that takes a look at the heart when it's discouraged and even depressed. And it's got that, that repeated refrain between, in Psalm 42 and 43, uh, Why are you so downcast within me, O my soul? Put your hope in the Lord. He is my rock and my help. And so... Uh, now, today we're at an interesting kind of crossroads because I want to stick with the psalm theme, but also it's the Sunday after Backyard Bible Camp, and so I usually try to preach on something from the theme of Backyard Bible Camp. 
And so this year, we at Backyard Bible Camp, we looked at the Ten Commandments, and the kids uh, learned the Ten Commandments. They memorized uh, Matthew 22, 37 to 40, uh, the application of the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and so I sort of, you know, I needed to find a psalm that would also bring us to the Ten Commandments or the law of God. And kids, you remember what, what Mrs. Benke uh, was teaching us over and over in the Bible lessons, that the law of God kind of serves two purposes. Like, what was the one purpose? Do you remember? She held up this, this thing. What's one purpose of the law of God? Even older kids, if you remember. That's right, it's a mirror. Good job, everyone. The law of God is a mirror because it shows us ourselves. When we look at the commandments, it's like, oh, I'm really bad at that. But I wanted, like, I was thinking about that, and then she said, but it's also a window. So it's a mirror, but it's also a window through which we can see Christ in his holiness and his perfection and his substitute for us. And so that, that got me thinking about it. So, like, if you want to think about it, like, so you could write a big M. If you take notes, you could write an M. Actually, no, I'm wrong. Write a W. So first write a W because you look at the law and it fills us with wonder. We look at the law and we're like, wow, God's really holy. That's quite, a, that's quite a requirement he has. But then if you put like a line right under the W and like make it look like it's a reflection and underneath it write an M, then that reminds you it's also a mirror because see, it's a reflection of the W. It's a mirror that I look at because it shows me my sin. When I look at the law, it shows me I'm not getting this. I'm not doing well with this. But then we flip that W upside down, or the M upside down, we get the W, the window, because it's a window. I look at the law, and I look through the law, and I see Christ's perfect obedience in my place. I see how God has fulfilled the law in Christ, and that he's my substitute, not just in death, but my substitute in life. His righteousness counted for me, even as my sin was counted against him. But if we stop there, we forget one of the third or final purposes of the law. And so we flip it back over and we remember that the law is also a map. God's law is a map, not a map to like follow these steps and find God, but a map for us who've already been found by God. Like if if God has done all this to save me and to provide his perfect righteousness for me, how should I live in response? And so the law shows the believer, the adopted child of God, this is how you live when you've been saved from your sins. And so you got, so you got all that. Everyone got that? Good. I'm not going to use that again. So, good. We're moving on from that. So, there are two psalms that kind of bring out the law of God uh, in, in, in poetic worship of God. So one is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has 22 stanzas. Each stanza is eight verses long. Each stanza begins with the, like in Hebrew, it begins, the, the, the verses begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 stanzas, so it's 176 verses. And it's a psalm just delighting in the law of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God, the way of the Lord. That is not the psalm we will look at today, as you are very happy. 
We have done that before, and you can search the archives. We've gone through Psalm 119 in one sermon before. Um, But today we're going to look at Psalm 19, another psalm that celebrates the law of God. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet... The word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So I like movies that have some sort of big reveal at the end of them. Some sort of shocking, uh, didn't see that coming, have to watch the entire movie all over again right now and look for all the clues to this. So uh, the book of Eli is one. By the way, no worries, I'm not going to tell you what the big reveal is on any of these titles I'm about to tell you, nor am I telling you that you ought to watch these movies. I'm just saying these are movies with big reveals, okay? So these aren't, I'm not endorsing any of the movies I'm about to mention. But the book of Eli is fascinating. Uh, the Usual Suspects is shocking, uh, but not recommended. Uh, the Sixth Sense if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense by now, uh, no, I can't. I won't even tell you to see that. But anyway, really, any movie that has the name M. Night Shyamalan attached to it, you can expect you're going to be surprised. There's some big reveal at the end of the movie, and you're going to be like, what? And you're going to rewind and look for all the clues that were there. That, like, as you, like, the more you watch it, the more you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, look at that. Oh, I didn't see that the first time. I didn't notice that. Uh, Psalm 19 is a simple, 
poetic reminder that creation and God's law both have big reveals. Uh, that, and as you look at them, the more you go back and look at them, the more you can wonder and say, wow, how did I even miss that the first time that I saw those? Our outline is simple. Obviously, you've got the, what the heavens reveal and what the law reveals. But lest you worry that this is not a true Presbyterian sermon, each of these points has three subpoints. So really, in reality, you get two Presbyterian sermons, each with three proper points uh, put together. And it's Communion Sunday, so we have time for two sermons. <laughs> All right, so what do the heavens reveal? Uh, what do the heavens reveal? Verses 1 to 6. Uh, you notice, have you, did you notice how much of the language in uh, the heavens is, uh, is this speaking language in these first six verses? In verse 1, the heavens declare. In verse 1, the sky proclaims. Uh, in verse 2, day speaks, night reveals knowledge. In verse 3, there's speech and words and voices. In verse 4, there's voices and words. This is all what, uh, what theologians call general revelation. In other words, creation itself reveals things about God. It speaks of God. And interestingly, well, at least interestingly to me, uh, both, so, both many sermons have the exact same subpoints. And so when we look at creation, what creation reveals... Uh, while it reveals other things, uh, it doesn't reveal less than this. Uh, it reveals God's majesty, our brokenness, and God's goodness. So those are the three points of both of the points, that both creation and God's law reveal God's majesty, our brokenness, and God's goodness. We realize this is true when we talk about general revelation. Like, we know it's true, like, just in how we interact with each other. So, like, you can learn a lot about an artist from her art, can't you? I mean, maybe not everything, but you learn a lot. That's why you, like, if you have a favorite artist, you know, you know her works, and, like, her works tell you things, and they reveal things and show you things about her. You can learn a lot about someone uh, who's a, a builder or a contractor by their finished product, by, you know, the deck or the room or the bathroom. You can learn a lot about them by the, the work of their hands. Uh, you might learn that you don't ever want to hire that person again. Uh, you might learn that uh, if you looked at the projects around my house, you would learn that when I get to about 80% completion, I feel like it's good. I, f I feel like, I mean, I can see it. It's a passing grade. And I know what it's going to look like. I can see it in my mind's eye. And so, like, you know, molding, closet doors. I mean, I know what they'll look like. We've seen closet doors before. How many rooms need a closet door anyway? But you'll learn things about me if you looked at those projects. You'd be like, this guy doesn't finish what he starts. Or at least in some cases. You can learn even more about a person, that artist or that contractor, uh, by, by looking at their children, though, Right? Like looking at their offspring, you know, what are, what are the kids like? What likenesses do they bear? What, what are they, how do they act? They reveal truths about the artist. And so when we look at God's creation as these first sections, they reveal, first of all, God's majesty. 
just looking at creation alone, tells us that God is a majestic God, that he is really, really, really big. Like that he's amazingly big. Like if you've ever, have you ever done one of those like, like they show you those pictures on like, on on the computer usually is where it works best now, but like, oh, here's Earth. And it's like taking up the whole screen and then it like, it goes, whoop, and then Earth is like, oh, but here's Earth compared to Saturn. And then it like backs up more. It's like, oh, here's Earth compared to Jupiter. And then it backs up more and it's like, here's the sun and there's this pinpoint on of the Earth and you're like, what? That can't be right. But then they back it up more and they're like, oh, but the sun is like the size of the Earth compared to other stars in our galaxy. And you're like, no, that can't be right. And like just size and relationship and like you see this and you're like, and God did it. And the beauty of like the stars and the galaxies and the nebula is that like we spend so much time and so much energy and so much fan fiction in outer space, and it gets a verse in creation. It gets a, and the stars, and the, it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. So probably focusing a little too much on those pieces if God just thought it was worth a conjunctional phrase. But we see that, you know, when you go to the ocean, if you're an ocean vacationer, like, the, so there's ocean vacationers and mountain vacationers, both work like, you go to the mountains, and it's like, this is enormous. I remember one time, I, the first time I flew into Denver Airport, and a friend was picking me up. And, like, other than when I was 10 and had no sense, well, no sense, period. Uh, and we went, to, uh, we went to Glacier Park, and, like, that was completely lost on me as a 10-year-old, I realized. Uh, but I especially realized that first time I flew into Denver, because we're driving out of the airport, and I'm just... Like, it's surrounded, Denver Airport. And you're like, I just said, this is amazing. Now, funny story about the friend who picked me up. She was like, oh, I know. And they built it in like two years. And I was like, what? No, the mountains, not the airport. <laughs> and so it's just funny how like, uh, like we're very focused on ourselves. But like you look at the mountain, you look at the ocean, just the vastness of the ocean, Another time we took a friend when we were living in Baltimore, we brought friends back to Cleveland where we grew up. I know this doesn't sound like an ocean story. And, um, and we took them to the beach we grew up going to, uh, Amy and I, and it's a beach on Lake Erie. And we said, well, we're going to go to Lake Erie. And we get there to the beach on Lake Erie, and he just stood there dumbfounded. He's like, this, this isn't a lake. <laughs> he said, you can't see, like, you can't see the edges. You can't see the, this, he said, this is like a giant freshwater ocean. Like, it was the first time he'd seen the Great Lakes. Now, the funny thing is, for me, that's all I knew about as lakes. And so then, for me growing up, going to other places, they're like, oh, let's go to a lake. I'd be like, this is more of a pond, really, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> so, but perspective is like that. But, or even just look at our design. Think about our ears, like the, the, the hammer and the drum and the, the things that are just, like those things are bouncing right now in your ear, turning waves of air into words. Like, do you ever think about that? Does that ever, like even speakers boggle my mind. Like, like that's, so here's a wire, and when it gets over here, it's sound. 
It's the same sound that comes out of my mouth. And there's no like little dude in there mimicking my voice. Like how does that, it just, it causes you to wonder. Like you're full of wonder. So God's creation, the heavens reveal the majesty of God. But creation also at least shows us that something is not right. Even if creation doesn't show me my brokenness, it shows me something's broken. When I look at creation and I see disease, and I see disasters, and I see mudslides and fires and hurricanes, when I see decay, like I see these things and I know something's broken. Even when I look at nature, when I look at creation, and I just turn inward and look at creation, I know something's broken. When, when mankind is more heartbroken and fighting harder for saving puppies and kittens than they are for saving children's lives, something's broken. Something's not right. The violence that we commit against each other We see in creation something's broken. The fact that we can't disagree without hating each other. Like, we can't just disagree and leave it at that. If you disagree with me, well, I'm not supposed to talk to you ever again. Something is broken just looking at creation. We can't get away from it. But then third, when you look at creation, creation reveals God's goodness even in spite of the brokenness. Creation reveals God's grace. What Again, what theologians would call common grace, that God is kind to all of his creation, whether saint or unsaved sinner. The repetition of the sunrise and the sunset Even as the psalmist is like, you know, these things, like, it always happens at the same time every day. Have you noticed that? Like, I mean, obviously things change a little bit, but like, and it always, the sun always comes up in the same relative place. And it always goes down in the same relative place. Like, obviously the sun, like, you know, we, it's not, it's, it's poetry. So he's not saying like, oh, I think the sun is a chariot being driven by a dude. And no, he's saying, like, no, that's what the sun is like. It, it always completes its course. It's how we know God is Presbyterian, because the sun doesn't come up at a different place, different times. You know what that would mean? Like, the earth would have to start turning in different ways every time. It's like, oh, let's try west today for the sunrise. Like, that would be awful. That would be chaos. God, God controls creation decently and orderly. And that's like the mantra of being Presbyterian. Everything decent and in order. Creation is orderly. It shows God's goodness. It doesn't, there's no surprises in it. The fact that the sun rises at all is a sign of God's goodness. The world is broken and we know it's broken because of us. And every time the sun rises, God is saying, this is the day of salvation. This is one more day of salvation. This is one more day to repent. This is one more day to return to me. The renewal of life we see in creation. We had a tree in the front yard that got split by a storm, and it was a mess. It looked horrible, and we didn't do anything about it, sort of the 80% rule. But 
But in this one, like five years later, you can't even tell that tree looked so uh, horrific. We've had neighbors comment, like, did you do anything? Why that tree looks healthier now than it did before? That's just a sign of God's goodness. You know, when we break bones, you know, when they're healed, when bones are healed, like when you get a sprain and, and it heals, it's, it's always a little weaker. But, you know, bones, when they heal, they heal stronger than when they were first, before they were broken. So, so you go through this disastrous, this, this calamity, and the healing is actually makes you stronger than you were before you experienced the break. That's an amazing, like, that's interesting that, that God does that. It's a sign of God's goodness. The things that we are learning about the human body are a sign of God's goodness. I mean, think about this. Young children who are struggling to develop the ability to feed themselves can get nourishment, whereas in the past, they would simply die of starvation. Children who were born unable to hear can get implants, and their hearing is restored. Eyesight that is fading can receive assistance, and, and there's technology and, and wisdom to, to help people see. Heart attacks aren't death sentences anymore. Difficult childbirths don't always result in the death of a mother or death of a child. Diabetes is not a death sentence today. Cancer can be found and treated and sent into remission and these examples are just examples from our little congregation and our extended families. Like everything I just said are things that we ourselves have experienced because God is a good God who directs creation to do good things and gives us wisdom to understand these things. It's amazing. Let me, so maybe slightly lighthearted, but I think this illustrates better than anything else that God loves you. What is this? Yes. When I was a child, these didn't exist. When I was a child, a water balloon was just a balloon. You went and bought balloons, and you went to the water hose, and you filled them up. But balloons are normally big. But you can't fill a balloon with that much water. That's 13 pounds a gallon. Like, that's not doable. And so you would fill it a little. But the problem with filling a water balloon, a real balloon with a little water, is it's still too strong. And so now you just have this rubber ball you're throwing back and forth at each other and hitting each other in the face, and it never pops. And then this, this glorious, how, how did it take us? This long to figure out what a water balloon should be like. It should be thin. It should be practically useless for any other purpose. But the problem is, once you make it this way, you go to the garden hose, and it's got those rings on it, and you go to put it on, and oh, that one rips. And so you go to put another one, oh, that one ripped. And so you go to put another, oh, that one ripped. And so then you go inside, because there's no, there's no rings on mom's sink. And so you go inside, and you fill that. And apparently, three gallons of water on the kitchen floor is too much price to pay for three water balloons. And so what are we to do? And so then, not only did they invent this, they invented this. 
How crazy is this? You just put that on your hose and you slide this up on and you fill the balloon, but it's still, it's still too much work because now you still need two people because you put it on and it slides off or you got to hold it on and someone else has turned it on. No, it's too full. Oh, it burst. And then so like you have to turn it on. No, turn it off. No, turn it back on. No, turn it off. And then, and then, and I know I'm behind the times, but I was blown away. Like my mind was blown away this week at Backyard Bible Camp because this is the first time I ever saw these. (laughs) Am I the only one that didn't know these existed till this week? This is, how do you not, like you screw it on, you turn on the water, they fall off when they're full into your bucket and they're sealed and ready to go. And I even like the little sign on it I took off this morning as I was looking at it, it said, there are two extras on every thing so that to allow for damaged balloons. Like, of course, of course, because some kid's going to count. It's like, I only got 24. But (laughs) you cannot look at these things and tell me the progression of water balloons and then claim that there is not a good God in heaven who wants you to have a good time in life. (laughs) Like, this exists because God is kind. Like, there's no other, there's no possible explanation for why we figured this out. Like, the question is, why did it take us so long to figure this out? But that's because of sin and our brokenness, and, like, we just don't get it. But, and see, I know, I know, it's silly, it's lighthearted, but all the little things in creation that that scream to us of God's majesty, but our brokenness, but God's goodness, it's amazing. And the psalmist loves to delight in it, but the problem is, It can't tell you the complete story, can it? I mean, nobody's claiming that water balloons are a sign that uh, the whole world is going to heaven. Well, some people are claiming that. I mean, I can can learn something about an artist by looking at her work and by observing her offspring. But really, to learn about the artist, I have to talk to her. I need to listen to her. I need to hear what moves her, what grieves her, what excites her, and learn those things if I want to know. Creation is truly beautiful, and it is absolutely necessary. I mean, without creation, you die, but it's not enough. And the psalmist moves on from what theologians call general revelation to special revelation, to very specific, that God, yes, he speaks from creation, but he also speaks through his law. He speaks through his word. And if creation speaks of God and it was created by God, then we expect that God's word is going to say the same thing as creation. That when we go to God's word, or specifically here, God's law, we're going to see the same three things. We're going to see God's majesty. We're going to see our brokenness. But we're going to see God's goodness when we look at the law. Obviously, it shows his majesty. I mean, it just shows... Uh, the holiness of God, that, that there is an, a God who is very intentional and he's not going to create us in his image and not tell us how we ought to live to both please him and care for one another. We see the holiness of God in his law. And of course, we see our brokenness. How can we not? I mean, there's not an adult Helper or teen helper, if they were listening during any of the Bible stories this week, that could walk away from our Ten Commandments lessons 
and go, yeah, I got that. I'm, I got this. I'm, I'm 10 for 10. Like, there's no way. I mean, we, there's just no, I mean, we'd like to claim that we could do that until the Ten Commandments ends with, it's all about your heart. Don't covet. How crazy that, so like if you and I were to design, here's 10 rules that every, every good rule can be based on. I just don't think we would think it necessary to use one for wanting things too much in your heart, let alone that we think one should be about worshiping God and resting on the Sabbath. Like, I don't know that we would put that in the top 10, but don't covet. Like, we would say, oh, that's covered under steel because Jesus said hate's covered under murder, so covet must be covered under steel, and yet in God's wisdom, he puts covet right in the Ten Commandments. Don't want things so don't be so ruled by your desires it's in you they will have dominion over you your desires if you don't rule them they will rule you if you want something so badly that you can't even be excited for the person who has it or the person who's experienced it but you're only jealous you're only outraged you're only well why didn't i get that why can't i have that it just reveals to us our brokenness. But the law reveals God's goodness, doesn't it? First of all, we see a God in the law. We see a God who loves us too much to just let us leave us to figure it out on our own. Like no parent. Well, Okay, so maybe you are this kind of parent, and I would advise you against this, but uh, the whole, like, you know, if they, you know, if they touch the burner, they'll learn. Okay, that might be true. They also might burn their hand off. So that's a, that's a costly lesson. That's like saying, well, they're only going to play in the street once. It's like, okay, technically, again, true, but they will die. And so, like, parents who love their children set up consequences for doing things that are going to hurt harm or kill themselves because a small consequence is way better than doing the thing and experiencing the large consequence. How delightful is it that God loves you so much that he's like, here are the rules. Like, I'm not hiding it from you. This live, do this and live. I think sometimes we think of God as though like he just, he's a rule monger. He just likes rules rather than a God who delights in his children and so gives us rules. You know, God wasn't sitting in heaven saying, you know, I've got this great plan for a garden and there's going to be a tree. Like I'm putting a tree right in the middle of it and it's such a cool tree, uh, but no one's allowed to eat it. And I don't know what to do with this plan. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll create people so that they can have, so they can live in the garden and not eat the tree that I don't want people to eat from. Like, that wasn't, that wasn't God's plan. Like, he didn't think, I've got these great ten rules. You know what I need? I need people that could follow them. Like, that's not how God works. He's, you know, even in the Ten Commandments, we learn, you know, as the Ten Commandments begin, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives the Ten Commandments. He didn't send Moses with the Ten Commandments into Egypt and the slaves and say, do this, 
and I'll free you. He sent Moses at Mount Sinai and said, I have freed you, so here is how you live as my now freed people. God's law shows us his goodness. When when God gave his law originally in Exodus at Mount Sinai, it is immediately followed by the sacrificial system. Like, do you, do you ever ponder what that means? This is what it means. God says, here is how you are to live, and here is what you do when you don't live how you are to live. Like, the law contained in it, here's what you will do when you break my law. I will provide a way. Even the psalmist recognizes his truth. He sees the majesty and holiness of God in creation, and then he sees the majesty and holiness of God in his law, and he immediately seeks forgiveness. Declare me innocent. He's looking for God to do an act in his heart. You declare me innocent. Innocent of unintentional or hidden faults, and cleanse me from presumptuous sins. Hidden faults are those, those unintentional sins. Those things that we do that we don't even realize what they are until someone loves us enough to point it out. And I've shared with you often just the shortened version of the, that evening at home when, when Amy was kind enough to just say to me, you're angry. You're an angry husband, you're an angry father, and you're an angry pastor. And honestly, I was blind to it until she said it. And as soon as she said it, I was like, she's absolutely right. I have become so angry, so entitled, so this is not what I signed up for. This is, you are not holding up your end of the deal, God. Those sins that, that when there's someone kind enough to bring them to us, we realize maybe for the first time I did not see it. These were unintentional sins. But then there's the presumptuous sins. Wouldn't it be nice if all of our sins were unintentional? But it's just not true. Sometimes we sin and we know we are sinning. We presume to know better than God, at least for this situation. It goes all the way back to Genesis when she looked at the fruit and saw that it was a delight to the eye and it was good for food and was to be desired to make one wise, she took it and she ate. And isn't that us in all of our presumptuous sin? I look at the thing. I look at the moment. I look at the situation. I know what God has said, but surely he didn't mean it for this situation. Surely he didn't mean it for me. Surely he didn't mean be honest and truthful and full of integrity always. Surely he didn't mean love my wife alone, always, with my entire heart. Surely he didn't mean that if he knew the kind of wife I had, if he knew what my husband was like, if he knew what my kids, if he knew these presumptuous sins, we presume to know better than God. Or we presume, maybe that's not where you are. Maybe you presume that no consequence yet means no consequence ever. Maybe you assume... I haven't been caught. 
it must not be a big deal. Another psalm, Psalm 50, the psalmist says, speaking on behalf of God, he says, I was silent and you thought I was altogether like you. Don't we sometimes assume that God's silence means he approves or at least is turning a blind eye to our presumptuous sin? Now, strictly speaking about the law, the law is very much like creation, isn't it? The law is still merely a clue to God's goodness. It's not the whole story. The law will point you toward your need for an answer, but it won't tell you the answer. And so creation is beautiful and necessary, and without it you'll die, but it's not enough. And likewise, the law is beautiful and necessary, and without it you'll be lost, but it's not enough. All of God's word, Luke 24, Jesus tells us that all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms are necessary for knowing our true need, for knowing Christ, being pointed to Christ, to the Messiah, to the one that God sent. The Gospels, the Acts, the letters, these are all necessary for us to understand fully, to hear God's word about himself, to understand what we are to believe concerning God and his gospel, and, and how we are to live. God's entire word reminds us that God is holy, and you are broken. And God is so good and gracious and loving that he sent his son into creation, into this broken creation, to become part of this broken creation and to live in this broken, fallen world in full, perfect delight in God. Everything in creation always caused Jesus to perfectly delight in the Father. All in God's law caused Jesus to perfectly delight in the Father. He saw the law as a gift, as sweeter Jesus lived that life, that he, he held God's law as being more precious than gold, more precious than financial gain, more precious than, than economic comfort, more precious than a safety net, more precious than a retirement plan. He saw God's law and obedience to God's law as more precious than anything the earth could provide as far as safety or comfort. And he saw God's law as more delightful than the richest and sweetest delights this world offers. And he came and he died on the cross as though he despised God's creation and God's law in the ways that we do. As though he had turned a blind eye to all of God's goodness just the way we do. As though he were full of presumptuous sin as we are. 
We come to the sacraments and we get that gift of both creation and special, like the, the, the general revelation and the special revelation, creation and word. We get the, the, simple, the simple elements, bread and wine, water for baptism. And in all of the sacraments, we receive the word of God Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. There's law included, but it's not law to save you, but law of you've been saved. Here it is. Do these things. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And there's great grace and mercy found here at the table because of God's creation, because of God's law, because of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for creation. We're reminded in in John 1 that you, that is by the word of your power, you created everything that has been created. We praise you, Jesus, that you are the word of God. That you are the way and the truth and the life. That you came and fulfilled all righteousness. You fulfilled the law. Not so that the law could be thrown out, but so that we could be saved. We praise you and thank you. Thank you for the good gift of creation. Thank you for the good gift of your law. God, would you be merciful? Even now as we prepare to come to the table, even as the sun makes its course across the sky and nothing is hidden from its heat, we know that nothing is hidden from the bright light of your Spirit. God, would you search our hearts? Open our eyes to see our unintentional sins, to see our presumptuous sins. And open the mouths of our hearts to cry out to you for forgiveness and mercy. Hear us as we confess our sin.